0: and welcome to this week's episode of No Really I'm Fine. Today we are still carrying on with our coronavirus special but of course as time moves on and lockdown restrictions ease we are delving into more of the different types of mental health and different types of mental illnesses. As I've said before anxiety and depression is talked about quite a lot but there are some other conditions in i that I've not heard of before. That I think definitely need to have more awareness and and be talked about a lot more, which is why I'm very pleased today to be joined by a lady called Rachel Pearson, who actually has the same name as one of my good friends, the exact same first name and last name. So I had to do a double take when Rachel first uh, messaged me. So Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Are you really fine today?
1: Thank you for having me. And yes, I actually am today. It's a good day today. So,
0: the sun makes everything better.
1: It does definitely.
0: And, Rachel, you reached out because you wanted to highlight your condition and and what you've experienced with emetophobia.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, for a long time I've wanted to talk about it, but have never really found the right platform to do it on. Um, I've messaged sort of different newspapers magazines and never really had a response I was quite surprised when you know you messaged back and and was interested in talking to me so thank you for that
0: no no need to thank me Um, I have actually heard of it once before one of my friends Mm -hmm. has experienced it but she's told me the symptoms of it and she's never actually named it by name which is why I didn't know too much about it when you first said it by its name so do you want to tell me a little bit about it because I'm sure our listeners will, will want to know what it is as well.
1: Yeah so basically it's it's quite um it's not really that uncommon for your friend to sort of have gone through knowing the symptoms of it but not knowing the name of it. So emetophobia is basically the specific phobia of vomiting. Now, some people with emetophobia might not even know that they have it. You know, they might just be having severe panic attacks and worrying constantly about themselves vomiting or if they've been around anyone that could give them any illness that could make them vomit or even about other people vomiting. So some people may have it solely about themselves and won't mind so much if someone else vomits near them. Or it it, it could be a mixture like myself. I'm scared of me being sick and other people vomiting around me. So it is quite a a vast scale of emetophobia. I mean, I don't think there's really, you know, any precise way to say this is what you have and this is emetophobia. It, It took quite a long time for me to actually get a diagnosis my diagnosis was only given to me last year, and I've had it for about 10 years. So it kind of shows how you can really slip through the gaps with emetophobia um, when it comes to seeing your GP and mental health teams. Mm. And when I saw my mental health team last year, I'll, I'll go into a bit more detail about the journey I've gone on with emetophobia, but they actually said to me it was only coming into diagnosing manuals, so the sort of books that they refer to when giving diagnoses it was only put into that manual last year and even so it was put as a sort of sub diagnosis so it hasn't really been given its sort of legs to stand on yet but i think it's in the process of changing hopefully it doesn't really give you, a bit more
0: going to say it doesn't really give you much confidence when it's not even in the uh, doctors no. manual
1: <laughs> it really doesn't i mean i think even a few healthcare professionals i've seen sort of raise their eyebrows at it and thought is that a real thing and I know for many years I sort of sat wondering, you know, is it a real thing that I'm so scared of vomiting that it's literally changing my life drastically? So <laughs> it's, it is quite a, a difficult one to diagnose.
0: Mm, so how did it all start then? You said you have, you've, had, you've had it for 10 years.
1: Yes. Yeah, so basically when, it, when I was younger in 2002, we moved from South Africa to the UK and my childhood was great. I was very happy, healthy. But unfortunately, when we moved to the UK, things sort of started to take a bit of a turn. There were a lot of family deaths and illnesses. So my dad's mum had a heart attack shortly after we moved. Then shortly after that, his brother committed suicide. And so I was very young. I was about four years old. So for me, you know, it was it was a lot going on. I sort of knew things were wrong, but I was a child so didn't really process any of it um but as I grew older my mum's mum so my nan who I was very close with got diagnosed with liver cancer now some of the memories I had so she had that for about four years we would go back to South Africa and visit her and some of the memories I have of her is of her on chemo and she'd sort of like throw up into a drain and things like that that sort of stick in my memory as very vivid memories and images and unfortunately she did pass away and that was the first real experience I had of bereavement and grief and then literally within a month or so my dad got diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma which is a type of non-curable cancer So at the age of sort of 10, 11, I was walking down from school, you know, in year seven, walking down to witness my dad sort of sitting there in hospital having chemo while other children my age would be going and meeting their friends in, you know, the town centre and having fun being kids. But I was, you know, witnessing my dad having chemo Um, and he was quite unwell with it, as, you know, unfortunately a lot of cancer patients are or anyone that's on any, you know, strong medication. So... That was quite a really difficult point for me um, as I was growing up. I wasn't a sickly child, so I'd never really experienced vomiting. But unfortunately, in 2010, my dad was going through chemo, as I said, and we went out for dinner on my mum's birthday, so on the 21st of December. And we'd got home late. And I'd sort of fallen asleep on the sofa, didn't feel quite right, but went to bed and my dad was in his room, in my parents' room, fast asleep. My mum was in another room with my sister and I woke up, didn't know what I was feeling. And then I, you know, was violently sick everywhere and it just wouldn't stop and I was convinced I was going to die. Absolutely convinced I was going to die. And nobody heard me, so nobody was there to sort of come and help me. So it was the first time I'd been properly sick. And I didn't know what to do. So that sort of stuck with me. And then apparently the day after, I mean, I don't remember any of this. It's sort of, it's weird with emetophobia as it's gotten older. It sort of robbed me of my memory. I don't remember anything, but apparently the day after I was fine. But then things started to affect me in school. I was having panic attacks. Um, I was ending up in hospital in a and a lot because I was telling my parents something's really wrong. I'm dying. I'm dying and then they would admit me to hospital run tests and then eventually one of the nurses said, do you not think that this is some sort of anxiety? And my parents were genuinely shocked because I was acting sort of fine to a degree. But then, yeah, so it just kept sort of snowballing while I was in school as the years went on. And then my mum collapsed in front of me and she was diagnosed with stage three kidney disease. And then shortly after that, my sister collapsed and was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So there was just all this illness going on around me and me not being able to process when I was violently sick. So it all sort of just clumped into one and then I became absolutely petrified of being sick to the point I wouldn't sleep in my own bed. I refused to go out for dinner anywhere. I didn't want to hang around with other kids because I was scared that they would have illnesses that would I could catch and would make me sick. School became... massive issue because I didn't want to go into school because I thought, oh, there's loads of kids around. I didn't want to use public toilets. It just sort of became this massive monster that just carried on until
0: now. (laughs) You've experienced a lot of trauma though, haven't you? A lot of um, sadness and unfortunately death within the family. Do you think that sort of developed because of that then and you were so perhaps terrified of getting ill yourself.
1: Oh, definitely. I think, you know, witnessing as much as I had in such a short period of time um, in probably the most important years where, you know, kids develop friendships and relationships and, and all sorts, it, it really just changed my perspective on it all. And I was so scared that, you know, I I don't know whether I've associated everything with being sick. I'm not sure how it's all sort of come to focus around vomiting in my head, but it, it definitely all plays its part because my sister, you know, before her diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, she was, she vomited a lot. And that was obviously because of her multiple sclerosis before she knew. But it was always to the point where I would literally be putting my fingers so hard in my ears to stop myself from hearing it. It it was, you know, I used to get scared whenever she'd go out. Um, Whenever my family would go out for dinner, I'd think, oh, they're going to come back and they're going to be sick. And so it just took over everything. And, you know, I tried different therapies. So, you know, I was referred to CAMS as a child and had EMDR. So that's rapid eye movement therapy um, to help with the trauma to sort of like reprogram the way my brain was thinking. But unfortunately, that didn't help. Then they tried play therapy because they thought, well, I was so young that that might help. But unfortunately, again, did not help. Tried hypnotherapy, CBT, exposure therapy. So that's quite a common one used for emetophobia. But unfortunately, the type of exposure wasn't enough and it became equally difficult because it sort of involved reading things about sick, looking at pictures of people vomiting, cartoons vomiting, videos, sounds. And that just was a bit too much for me at the time. And then I tried neuro-linguistic pathway reprogramming. So I gave them all quite a good go, but unfortunately they they didn't work. So this was over the period of 10, 10 years and during those therapies, I'd obviously be going to the doctors and they'd be putting me on the different anti anxiety tablets So fluoxetine, sertraline, acetylopram, metazapine, diazepam, lorazepam, to see if any of those would help in conjunction with the therapies. But they didn't. <laughs> so this was the problem. I was fighting emetophobia, and, and as a family, we were doing everything to find some sort of answer because I think when you have a you just you want it to stop you're sitting there you know with all these intrusive thoughts about sick you know if you're watching tv and someone vomits on the tv you you know you're turning away so quickly because it's horrific you can't look at that you can't deal with that you can't deal with people talking about if they've had stomach bugs or their children have been sick or you know you don't go near anywhere where well, I don't go near anywhere where children are because I'm so petrified of picking something up from them. It, you just look for answers. And unfortunately, with it being such a, a, a quiet phobia, I guess, there, there isn't much out there. So you, you Google and you Google and nothing comes up. Um, so my dad eventually found something called the Linden Method and I gave that a go, but unfortunately it didn't give me the answers I needed. And that was a three-day retreat away where you learnt different ways of coping mechanisms. You know, you learnt yoga, tai chi, and actually you try and learn to look at your anxiety in a different way. But unfortunately for me, that didn't click. For some people it does, but for me it just didn't. So then my dad found someone called Professor David Veal, and he is actually a sort of a lead in emetophobia. And he works in London and he, um, he's researched a lot into it. And so we paid privately to go and see him. And he was the very first person to give me the diagnosis of emetophobia. So that was quite a breakthrough. Yeah, he, he said to me that the places that are best to treat it are CADAT. So that's the Centre for Anxiety Disorders and Trauma and the Anxiety Disorders Residential Unit. That was the first sort of breakthrough I had.
0: (laughs) And how many years later was that?
1: So that was nine years later, because it was last year, January, things sort of took a turn for the worse. So for a long time, I was able to manage it and, and find ways to manage it. So I think bouncing between the therapies, I'd learn different things along the way. Eventually, it just sort of got too much. And I had a breakdown at work because I was working at the time. And it just, I think it was the contamination of being in an office, you know, I was scared about using the toilets, I was scared about touching anything, I didn't want to eat anything Um, and it just got to the point where I got so unwell that I drove to work one day and I don't know how I did, (laughs) I really don't know, and I just got to the car park and burst out crying because I just did not want to go into that office, you know, I, I didn't want to be around people. I was too scared. And eventually my mum came and picked me up and and I went off on long term sick and needed to find answers and needed to just find the help because I was at that last straw. I was clutching at straws for the help. And I thought that if I can't get help this time round, you know, I, I was contemplating sort of ending at all which is really sad looking back at it and looking back at that place that I was in but I just think that there was no no answers there was no help and I really needed help
0: it's interesting that you went through so much therapy given the fact that there wasn't too much known about it and with us yeah. with you mentioned before the fact that it's only just getting into sort of health books as well so yeah. it was almost as if they were just seeing what worked
1: Definitely. I think it's it's very confusing for the local mental health teams because I, I honestly don't believe that people know what the right thing is to do about this um, this illness. But luckily, I found Professor Veal and I found the Anxiety Disorders Residential Unit. So after a long period of time of sort of, it took me the whole of 2019 to basically get into the anxiety disorders residential unit. So I went through the GP and was given sort of primary health care through the community mental health teams. So that's like online services like Think Action, Mind. And eventually I sort of said to them, look, I really respect what you've done, but this isn't enough. Um, I need something more because nothing is changing. And unfortunately, I think the the problem with the metaphobia is a lot of people say oh, I have that, you know, when you tell people I'm scared of being sick or I'm scared of vomiting, I think there's a bit of a really thin, invisible line because a lot of people really don't like vomiting. I don't think there's many people that do. (laughs) I I would be a bit (laughs) freaked out if people liked it. (laughs) Yeah, I would Um, as well. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's not a nice sort of experience but I think that a lot of people do say, "Oh, I have that. I don't like being sick. so I must have a metaphobia. But I think the difference is is you can really, really not like being sick. but I think it's when you ha- you fear vomiting so much to the point where you don't want to leave your house and you're not you don't even feel safe in your own house. like I'm 22 years old and I am so embarrassed to admit this, and it's really scary that I am but I can't sleep in my own bed. I have to sleep in bed next to my mum because I'm so scared that if I wake up and I'm sick, I'm going to die. I won't know how to deal with it. What, you know, what am I going to do? And this has been the case for 10 years. You know, I've tried shifting between my room and her room and trying to make my room more pleasant so that I associate it as a safe place. But with metaphobia, you're never safe because no matter where you are, you get these intrusive thoughts, you get these feelings that something really terrible is going to happen. And whether you believe that vomiting leads to other things besides death or whatever the reasons behind it, it is just all consuming. So when people say, oh, I have that, it's really not quite like that. So when I was fighting for secondary health care, a lot of the mental health nurses were actually saying to me, oh, well, I've had what you have. And so I would sort of sit back and think, you know, I I really don't think so, because you would be pushing for me to get more help because I literally can't leave my house. (laughs) So it was it was a really, really difficult time and really sort of confusing because I was begging, you know, the teams for help and I just was getting nowhere. But eventually, after seeing Professor Veal and showing the letter to the mental health team, I was able to get a referral for secondary health care and was put on the waiting list to see a clinical psychiatrist. Unfortunately, with mental health teams at the moment, they're just so stretched. And, you know, I know it it comes down to funding and it's such a, a difficult time because there are so many mental illnesses. But while you're sort of sitting there on the waiting list, things are just deteriorating. And that's for a number of people. Everything is just deteriorating around you. You're making it day to day. But, you know, for me, I didn't know how I was making it day to day. I have a lot of good around me and I knew that, but I just really, really needed my thoughts to stop. And that's quite a scary thing to sit and think, is you just wanting your thoughts to stop. So in the meantime, I was just looking for ways I could get the help I needed while waiting to see this psychiatrist. So I found a route with the GP called a patient's choice route, and that's basically where it doesn't matter your health condition. You can go to whichever healthcare provider, doctor, clinician that you want for a, a, a one-off assessment. That will be covered. The funding will be covered. So I got that assessment for the Centre for Anxiety Disorders and Trauma, which is based at the Maudsley Hospital. I saw a psychologist in July of 2019 who gave me the same diagnosis of emetophobia. So once I got that report, it was eventually time to see the community mental health team psychiatrist. And he agreed with the diagnosis and completely knew that the local mental health teams were not equipped to help with emetophobia. And he had heard of the anxiety disorders residential unit. So he was straight away saying, you need to go there. Like, that is the best place for you. But in order to secure funding, because this is the thing, you know, it's all good and well, him saying that I needed to go there. But the only way I could get funding was to see a psychologist who could say that he could not help me. And so I was sat there, you know, literally pulling my hair out. And I mean that literally because when I was so anxious, that's all I would do is just pull my hair out. And I was sitting there and I was going, what more do I need to do? Like, I'm desperate for help. How can I get it? And I think this is the problem with emetophobia is people just don't know the pathways to get help. And the fact that this has been going on for 10 years and this is the pathway I've been on, it was just exhausting. While you're exhausted from losing sleep because of panic attacks and, you know, it was just relentless. So the waiting list to see that psychologist was then, you know, like six months. But after just literally ringing them every day saying, has he got a cancellation? Has he got a cancellation? I was able to see him within a month. And he said to me, I've only ever treated one case of emetophobia. And the person was only afraid of themselves being sick. So I don't think I can benefit you. And then after having all of the answers, all of the evidence I'd gathered, my local CCG wouldn't fund me. So they just refused to fund me. They said, we don't see why you need to go to a specialist unit outside of our area for help. And so by then I was just absolutely distraught because I thought my one chance to get sort of a future and a life that I want to live, because I've been robbed of a lot over the past 10 years because of this illness. And I you know, I was like, I'm not giving up here. So I called my local MP and I said to her, please help. <laughs> I need funding. Can you help me? And she luckily sought the funding and I was added to the waiting list for the anxiety Disorders residential Unit. and they have been incredible.
0: It's just so tragic though that you have to go through that process because people listening who may have may have this illness mm-hmm. might not have the chance or Definitely. the strength to do, to do what you did. and it's just it's just very frustrating, isn't it that this isn't on everyone's radar you know, because it's not as clear cut, you know, if you say I've got anxiety, I've got depression, well, there's this charity or there's this route or there's this form of therapy. Mm. And, you know, what do you do when you um, say that I've got a fear of being sick? It just seems like people, like you say, people just say, oh, yeah, I don't like being sick either because who does? It's, no, it's right. more than you more than you say, isn't it?
1: It is. And unfortunately, I think this is the thing. It's, it's precious time, you know, I think... What people don't realise is it's someone's life that's that's sitting there. Um, and you're completely right, because I don't think if it wasn't for my parents who were telling me, you know, just hang on, hang on till the next appointment, hang on until the next person you see, we will get there, you know. And my dad literally was writing to the health secretary for in the government, like he was trying everything because we were that desperate um for the help. And I really do feel for people that are sitting at home that may be listening that don't know what to do or, or where to turn to or even know where to start, really, because I think a lot of these mental illnesses that are sort of under the radar, there's no clear-cut path. You have to sort of find your own path to getting where you need to go. Um, but all I would sort of say to anyone listening that, that really is struggling but is waiting for answers or waiting for appointments or is just waiting for that next step in their journey to just hang on and and just look to that and then think about the next step after. Don't think five steps ahead, just take the next one as it comes and then deal with whatever emotions come following that. So for me, it was always frustration and anger and you know the amount of tears I've cried over it, but I, I got to where I needed to get to. And the anxiety disorders residential unit is a really, really wonderful place. and I'd love to sort of talk more about that and and what they offer and and who they are. I think without them, I probably wouldn't be here today. And I've only sort of had half of my treatment there, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. But even that half of treatment has got me sat here today in a much different headspace than I was at the beginning of the year?
0: So you've gone through lots of form of, of therapy and you were mentioning that you were in a retreat where you were was it where you were watching people being sick and that and that didn't work. So how is this form of treatment different to the rest then?
1: Basically, the Anxiety Disorders Residential Unit is part of the South London and Maudsley NHS Trust, um, and it's based at the Bethlehem Royal Hospital. So that hospital was known as Bedlam. I don't know if that rings a bell.
0: Okay, yeah. Yeah,
1: Yes, it was known as Bedlam, so the oldest mental asylum. Um, So going there was quite scary because I sort of thought, gosh, like, that's the sort of name it's been given. You know, it was really scary because I've never gone to a sort of inpatient unit so it's an 18 bed unit um and they support body dysmorphic disorder habit disorders health anxiety ocd and the specific phobia of vomiting and what they do is it's basically um a structured each week's like a structured timetable but every morning you have to wake up quite early and then you go to like a group meeting for a lot of people that that is initially like the first challenge is sort of being in a room full of people. Like for me, I hadn't left my house in about a year except to go to very few places. So for me, going to this, this place an hour away from home, staying overnight away from home, like I said, like I can't even stay in my own bed. So me staying away from home, away from my parents, away from the safety net of home was the first step for me because I never thought I'd be able to do that. They basically integrate your mental illness into everyday life. For example, for me with emetophobia, I've got a lot of safety and avoidance behaviours. So I will check expiry dates. I will only eat certain foods. I won't eat foods who I, where I don't know who's cooked it. Um, I won't eat out at restaurants. I'll sort of carry hand sanitizers everywhere I go, dental wipes, cleaning stuff, you know, if ever I'm staying away from home. And so for me, it was going to a completely strange place, sharing a bathroom, so it's all communal. um, That, for me, was a massive issue. And then eating there, using the communal cutlery, communal cups, plates. It was sort of like living in uni halls, is what it's sort of reflected as as living as. They really have intensive therapy um, in the form of CBT and exposure therapy, but their exposure is slightly different. So for me, we were like... We started off with just photos and the psychologists and and counselors that are just so special specialist trained that they know what they're doing when it comes to emetophobia. Um it, it really sort of took took me away because I'd never experienced therapy like this to the point where we were making fake sick and literally it sounds so disgusting and it was horrific, but we were throwing it. Against walls all over the floor and and cleaning it up. And it was so difficult, but they are so compassionate and kind in their approach that I was able to clean it up. And that is something I never thought I would have done. They also do something called compassionate mind therapy. And this is something that I'd never heard of before going there. It's therapy that's designed to make you compassionate towards yourself. So I think for a lot of people with mental illnesses, everyone tends to put themselves down a lot
0: uh, Oh yeah. feel guilty. I do that all the time.
1: <laughs> mm, it's, it's really common, you know. So many people sit there and blame themselves and, and think of situations where they could have done something different.
0: It's like in the middle of the night you think of, oh, I shouldn't have said that today or, yeah. oh, I've done that wrong. <laughs> and then you feel Definitely. shit for about an hour.
1: <laughs> and it just goes round and round in your head and it doesn't stop. Or, you know, you think about your mental illness and you think, I'm to blame for this. You know, if I'd just done that differently all those years ago or if I just had a different brain you know really silly thoughts that you just put yourself down on it just targets those and it teaches you to actually give yourself a break <laughs> they follow a massive book and you sit down as a group and you go through it together and you basically just learn to boost your own soothing system so for me I tend to go to like my my mum my boyfriend um for constant reassurance you know, Am I going to be sick? Am I going to vomit? Was that food in date? Was that food fine? Did you taste that, that bit of meat before I ate it? Really, you know, intrusive thoughts that tell me you are basically going to die. You are going to vomit. It's never going to end. This compassionate mind sort of therapy, it just targets your mind a little bit and targets the way you're thinking to boost your own soothing system. And it does that through mindfulness practices they're quite weird. Some of the some of the activities you have to do, like one of them is a breathing activity where you just sit and you've got like a smile on your face, and it sounds really odd. But you just take you take five minutes and you just breathe with a smile on your face, and it does actually just make you change the way you feel, even if it's for a split second. But that split second of peace or whatever can sometimes be all you need when you're having a really bad day. It uses soothing rhythm breathing to help you calm yourself down and it unfortunately it's not a quick fix obviously it takes a lot of practice but that is why they do it so often at the unit because they know that it is something that's really good to have sort of in your mental health toolkit when you sometimes just need a five minute step away from everyone and everything to breathe.
0: How have you been coping then during lockdown? Because obviously you were saying that you're only halfway through that treatment and it's it's done wonders for you already. But has it had a toll on you, the fact that you're not doing it as often as, as you like with the pandemic and everything?
1: I think it, it's really weird because the treatment course is 16 weeks usually. Um, and I finished at the eight week mark. Because of the pandemic, we all sort of got sent home um, and a lot of the therapists had been redeployed to different services across the hospital, so they weren't actually able to stay in contact with us and we were handed over to our local community mental health teams. And so I haven't really had a lot of support. It would be very unfair to expect my local community mental health team to know what to do, um, seeing as they haven't really dealt with emetophobia before it has been really really hard I mean the first week it it just felt a bit alien because I was back at home with loads of pictures of vomit where Mm. I didn't know what to do with them (laughs) I I couldn't you know for the first week I could look at them and I had them up on my bedroom wall but unfortunately things just started to go downhill Um, and at first I was really beating myself up sort of saying, well, why have I let it slide? Why why have I done this? You know, I've unpicked all of the hard work I've done. Eventually, I sort of made a bit of peace and said, it is such an unusual situation. You know, I've only had half of my treatment. I have done amazingly to do what I've done. And it's not the end. I will go back one day and I will conquer things that I still can't quite wrap my head around and the way I think will change. And I know that I have it in me to get through this sort of journey until I go back.
0: And I suppose that gives you some comfort in some way, knowing that you've got another eight weeks, you know, when life does get back to normal for everyone.
1: Definitely, definitely. I mean, it's weird because there are days where things crop up unexpectedly, you know, say I'm watching TV and someone vomits you know, unexpectedly, before I would have to, like, just look away. But recently I was watching a series um, and you could sort of anticipate that the character was going to vomit. And I thought to myself, right, I have two choices here. <laughs> I can look away and take my headphones out or I can just see what happens. And I think for me what I've noticed is that I would tend to choose the option that I would have previously never chosen. So I decided to just keep my headphones in and I was okay. You know, you didn't see anything which was kind of the blessing because I don't think I would have reacted well to that, but I was able to sort of hear it and for me that was a massive achievement. I'm really mm-hmm. proud of myself. That's such a positive step.
0: Yeah. To not go back into old habits as well. It's that's always yeah. a good sign.
1: Definitely. I think for for me as well it's been quite hard sort of hearing because at first when coronavirus came around I just sort of thought it was a, a cold or like a flu type virus and then people started to say that they had vomiting <laughs> and diarrhea and that was like oh my god yeah. <laughs> you know that is really scary because I thought well now am I going to start worrying about that if I what if I get coronavirus and, and I begin to vomit uh, and you know it, it, it then became more of a problem with emetophobia me and my family we haven't left the house for 10 weeks because my mum sister and dad have all been shielding so
0: you've got the added anxiety on top then isn't it of the fact that your mum, your dad and your sister have got these serious illnesses as well
1: we've all done everything we can to stay inside we haven't gone anywhere we've been very lucky to have some friends that have have done all the the necessary things that we need done like collecting medication and stuff um but, yeah, it's it's just very bizarre because you come from a unit where they sort of, you know, the first week of the unit, they made me discard all of my um, antibacterial hand gels and stuff. Um, they had something called the OCD bully. And it's this big statue. It looks absolutely <laughs> horrific because it's just made out of metal. And it's got knives sticking out of it. It's, it's really quite a scary looking Bully, um, and I can see why they use it as an analogy because they they say for people with OCD, you know, when you get the urge to do compulsions and and checks and stuff, you have this bully in your head just saying you have to do it, go do it. You know, if you don't do it, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And when you go to the anxiety disorders residential unit with all your safety behaviors, all your avoidance behaviors, they just work on stripping them back one by one. And so when they when I told them. You know, I had all these different dental wipes and all these different things that I had that I felt safe with. They said, right, we're going to try and just get rid of some. And you put your hand gels in the OCD bully and you just completely, you just strip yourself of all of those safety behaviours. And so you come from a unit like that where they're telling you only wash your hands if you really need to because unfortunately there the people are quite unwell and they tend to overwash um, their hands and, and to quite some extreme lengths and so you leave a place like that and I think for the staff at the unit as well it was quite a shock because all of a sudden you're being told you need to wash your hands for 20 seconds you have to wash them every time you go out so it was quite a weird time to sort of adjust to that again because we were going out in London and literally touching the train seats, the handles, everything you probably wouldn't want to touch usually. We were going out and touching it all and not washing our hands and then going to eat something and and going to borough market and grabbing all the free food samples. So it, it was very bizarre to sort of come out of that world into the the world that we have today with everything that's going on.
0: I can imagine. Like it's very contradictory, isn't it? But I suppose the people who were helping you weren't expecting something like this to happen. I mean, I don't think anyone was really when you no. look at twenty twenty, it's a very uh very weird time. You said that you've been staying in the house now for ten weeks. And mm-hmm. you mentioned you had a boyfriend. How have you been coping away away from him?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's been quite difficult. I mean, I'm very lucky, first of all, just to say that he is extremely supportive and has been by my side throughout emetophobia and is very understanding. And he completely understood that as a family, we needed to shield. And so it has been really difficult sort of not having that support system, you, you know, in person. But we've been lucky enough to sort of have Facetime and the technology that we do today to stay in touch and we we've made sort of Thursday nights our virtual date nights which have been really nice but yeah I do look forward to to the day I can see him properly it'll be really really nice. Do you think you'll
0: be doing any social distancing walks yet or do you think you will be staying in?
1: Probably not I think for now um until you know because I I just get a bit worried about the amount of people that are going out and not maintaining social distancing I just I get a bit I don't know whether I'm just being pessimistic but I just I don't think it's worth the risk just yet um so I think that one's going to be put on hold for a little while
0: yeah no I completely agree I mean seeing some of the pictures in the media of you know people flocking to beaches and parks and anything like that is enough for me anyway to give me anxiety and not wanting to to go out, yeah. but I'm just lucky yeah. I've got a garden, and I don't don't know about you or each other. I yeah. suppose that's the one blessing, and all this is to have a garden and a bit of sun.
1: Definitely, it, it does make it all better. When did you yeah. and your
0: boyfriend meet? Then you could you were saying he's been with you throughout this whole journey?
1: I met him in 2018, at the beginning of 2018. So he basically worked at the gym I was going to. So for me I I was at a point where I was well enough to sort of I just got out of a not so good relationship where my I was on holiday with my ex and he I said to him, please can you not drink excessively? Because for me, I just don't go clubbing, don't drink alcohol because I'm too scared to that I will vomit and I equally don't really like it when family members and that or friends are drunk or whatever, because I just get panicky about it and so I'd said to him please don't do it and he did and was being violently sick while we were on holiday and then said some not so nice things so I actually left my ex-partner and once I left him I felt a lot better about sort of how you know I felt and he put a lot of blame on me that my mental illness made him really unhappy and so I carried That's a lot awful thing to say It is, yeah. It it affected me a lot. And I carried it around with me a lot. So I didn't really want to meet anyone else until I got myself, you know, better, which obviously is not the best way to look at at life. Because I think whatever you carry around with you is part of you, be it good or bad. And and you just have to find a way to, to live with that. And so I was going to the gym a lot because for me, exercise has always been a really good way of Getting out a lot of the anger I feel towards uh, my mental illness, um, and it makes me feel a little bit better. I would go to the gym, and he started working there, and I saw he caught my eye, and I was like, oh, you know, he's he's good looking. (laughs) And we just sort of got talking, and found out that he had been through quite a lot with his mental health, and so he already had an understanding of what it was like. It was just a breath of fresh air, really, for me to have someone sort of understand. And yeah, we just hit it off and yeah, we've been together happy ever since. He's just been so supportive. I mean, every night for the past sort of, so we've been together for about two years now. When I'd be going to bed, um, when I got really unwell with the mental illness again, I would have to say this mantra to him every night. Like, you're here, you're not going to leave. If I need you, you'll be here. I'm not going to be sick. I'm okay." And I'd have to say those things to him and he would just stay up every night answer those questions and reassure me every single time. And, you know, I was really lucky to have someone who didn't look at me like I was unusual, like I was strange and just understood. And his family have been so understanding as well. Like his mum, when I've had panic attacks at his house, has been there and has supported me. And and I'm really, really lucky to have that. But yeah, slowly working on not needing the reassurance from him, though, is, is the next sort of big goal.
0: That takes a while, though, doesn't it? Because, yeah. you know, I, I always look for reassurance from my partner as well. Um, In terms of, am I a failure? Have I done that right? And so uh, I totally understand where, where you're coming from with that. Have you um, come in contact with anyone else who has the same condition as you?
1: So I've only met the people that have the same condition as me through the anxiety disorder residential unit. And there were two lovely ladies that I met there who I'm very good friends with now, um, and they basically took me under their wing (laughs) when I got to the unit, which was really lovely, um, and gave me advice on things that I was to be expecting with treatment, and they're still really good friends of mine now, and throughout lockdown, you know, my friend Rosie, she's been the one person who's checked in every single day, regardless of whether I reply or not, because for me, when I'm having a bad day, I just sort of shut off my phone and and shut off to everyone and she's been there so um, it was really interesting to meet her and find out sort of why she has emetophobia and what led to it because I think like I said earlier on in the chat it's just such a broad illness and the things that trigger it are never the same and the people that have it some things that don't affect me really affect Rosie some people with emetophobia really struggled For example, to like brush their teeth and you know, because when you're brushing your tongue, if you gag, that could be too much. So it really is such a broad mental illness.
0: I know we touched upon it earlier, but what sort of advice would you give to someone then who's perhaps struggling during lockdown and perhaps doesn't know that they have emetophobia?
1: I think my piece of advice would be to first of all look into it, actually Google emetophobia and, and just see. If what you're experiencing falls in line with what's online and if it is, I think first of all, if you haven't gone to your GP already, go to your GP and say, I think I have this. Some GPs are really, really good. Um, For example, one of the girls at the unit, she went to her GP in the first instance and her GP was the one that told her, I think you have emetophobia. So it really does just vary on on who's around you and their knowledge. But go to your GP, get in touch with your mental health team if they are equipped to to deal with the metaphobia and they know how. Give some sessions of therapy a go. And if it's getting to the point where, you know, you really need help for it or you've been sitting with it for a long time equally as well. And, and you've just known something's not right. Look up the Anxiety Disorders Residential Unit or the Centre of Anxiety Disorders and Trauma. I mean, if you're based around London, I'm not too sure about the other areas of the UK. But those two places are the main people to deal with the metaphobia and the specific phobia of vomiting. And they can help. And I think that's just the key message is that there are people that know about this. And a lot of the therapists at the Anxiety Disorders Residential Unit are training other therapists... On how to work with emetophobia. There is hope that it could be coming to your local area, the help could be on its way to you through the therapist there, Um, and also to any therapists that are listening and psychologists or psychiatrists. Just to maybe, if you're interested in finding out more about it, to get in contact with the Anxiety Disorders Residential Unit, because I'm sure the therapists there really want to spread awareness about this and really encourage people to get in contact to learn more keep hope keep strong and know that there is help out there for you
0: thank you so much for sharing your story rachel i do really appreciate it and i really that's hope right. that you continue with your therapy and you know you complete it successfully because it sounds like it's thank already you. working so yeah thank you so much
1: no worries i also just wanted to say i think there could be an actual metaphobia charity that's in the process of being established with professor david Veal. um i'm not too sure about that though i think it could be coming so just just keep an eye out um and hopefully there will be one <laughs> thank you